I think that is a trend in the broader culture that sort of looks at difficulty, adversity, inconveniences as things that have to be avoided. Whereas I think if we were to, again, take a step back and think about it, we would say our communal values, our religious values should override the instinct to try to avoid anything uncomfortable. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. As an Orthodox Jew, I find the experience of mitzvah observance and participation in the Orthodox community to be a source of great religious meaning, comfort, and fellowship. Torah Judaism is the way that I and other Orthodox Jews interact with God, and that reality, alongside the communal and social aspects, has made Orthodoxy a source of pride and joy. I also recognize that aspects of Orthodox life can be a real source of anxiety and stress. This includes the pressures associated with Shmirat mitzvot. a lot of people getting ready for Pesach now know exactly what I mean, as well as stresses that arise from the everyday requirements of following the Torah. The sense of being commanded and the concomitant fear of shame and guilt if we fail can be weighty. And then, of course, there are the other anxieties that are simply associated with observance, such as the very high financial cost of living an Orthodox life, and the perhaps less defensible high financial cost of living in an Orthodox community with increasingly high material standards as well. Is there a way to deal with this anxiety? And more to the point, how can we prevent it in the first place so that it doesn't become debilitating? How can we work on preventing other mental health crises? Is the apparently increasing number of people suffering from mental illness a result of greater awareness? Or is there something going on in our communities that's exacerbating the problem? Conversely, are we sometimes guilty of relying on therapy too much? And is the assumption that we can lead perfect lives with perfect families in perfect communities and the inability to accept imperfection causing serious problems with long-term ramifications? I was honored to talk about this and more with Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen, and we'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started The Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen received smicha from Ritz and a PhD in clinical psychology from the George Washington University. 
Eitan has published articles in leading academic and Torah journals on various topics related to psychological trauma, as well as the interface between psychology and Jewish thought and halakha. Eitan is the author of a recent book, Talmud on the Mind, Exploring Chazal and Practical Psychology to Lead a Better Life, published by Kodesh Press. He lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh, where he has a clinical psychology practice and writes a monthly parenting column for the OU's Torah Tidbits. Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. I'm excited. Eitan, at the end of December, in episode 141, I spoke with Rabbi Larry Rothwax about the need of rabbis and psychotherapists to know their lane, so to speak, to understand when something is in the realm of rabbinic counseling and when something requires a mental health professional. You too, Eitan, are both a psychologist and a rabbi, but we're not going to address pastoral counseling per se. Instead, I think we're going to open up by looking at some of the anxieties that are endemic with an Orthodox life, some things that are associated with Orthodoxy, and perhaps how to prevent them from becoming, preventing the anxiety in the first place, certainly, but also preventing anxieties from turning into a more serious mental health problem. So let's open up right now with a discussion of some of the common anxieties that typically accompany a religious Jewish lifestyle and perhaps might even be unique to an Orthodox lifestyle. For example, there's the toll that Orthodoxy can take on a person's life, on his mental life, whether it's intense pressure of preparation for Shabbat and Chagim, the pressure of mitzvah observance, the need to go to Minyan for men three times a day, the need to be kovea itim la Torah, setting set times to learn, even when it's not necessarily so easy. There's massive tuition bills for many people who go to private Jewish day schools. And that's just off the top of my head. So what do you see, Eitan, as some of the typical reasons for Orthodox anxiety that might be specifically Orthodox? So, and I appreciate a lot of things that you mentioned. Maybe I'll take a step back for a moment in thinking about it. And the first is on the word anxiety. Anxiety can have a very clinical sort of meaning, uh, where we're talking about a fear type of reaction, uh, panic, physiological, and there can be, uh, again, anxiety can have a, a very specific sort of meaning. And I think that the way you're using it is the way I think a lot of people use it is generally speaking, there's this pressure, internal distress, discomfort, whatever it may be, as it relates to going through life. And uh, I also, I like how you framed it where it's, you know, orthodoxy or orthodox Jewish lifestyle, because it suggests, and maybe this is something to start with in how to frame it or how to think about it, is that it is not specifically about an individual experiencing individual things. There are often things on a communal level, or I'll use the what in a, the academic term, what they call the like social ecological model, which is there are different spheres of influence. Um, the person who actually developed it, it may be interesting, was a, a Jewish fellow uh, with Russian Jewish immigrants to America, Yuri Bronfenbrenner in the 70s. And there are these like concentric circles of spheres of influence on people. And so I think a lot of times when we think about the pressures or anxieties that individuals face, we are looking at the person, the individual who is experiencing them or suffering from them. And then we often think about solutions that are very much focused on, well, what is that individual meant to do? But if we look at it, as you're asking, from uh, a little bit farther back, we can say, oh, well, there are actually these other forces or stressors that are in place that have profound impacts on the individual or on families. Uh, and actually, the solutions are the most efficient, cost-effective uh, impactful are actually not on the individual level. As a marshal, this is something that I saw 
what comes to mind actually a few weeks ago. So I was doing carpool and anyone who lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh, if they're not, they're listening from not around here, they know that driving up this road so rake is a complete mess in the morning. And so there's somebody in, in, in the lane trying to pull out, somebody put, you know, who had just dropped off their kid in either the bus lane or one of the three parking spots that are available for the hundreds of kids who are meant to come. And there was a, a van dropping off a group of kids that stopped in the middle of the road creating a backlog behind them. And so there's this pressure building behind people getting anxious to do the next drop off. And a person, instead of, you know, assuming that the person on the road was going to wait, you know, the, per- the the other guy was pulling out of the lot and the two collided. Now, if you were looking at that, you'd say, well, what was the ang- what was the pressure going on here? Well, now it's that they have to pay for the damages of the car. And there was a pressure between these two people who weren't looking the right way. But if we take a step back, it's like, well, actually, it was the van driver who stopped in the middle of the road for 30 seconds, creating this backlog and the pressure. And if we really take a step back, we would say, well, it's the city planning of having 12, you know, schools all along this road with blind curves, you know, without enough parking for anybody to drop off during rush hour. And there are thousands of kids and pedestrians. And so I think when we are thinking about stressors, I know that may be a, an example a little bit from left field, but it, but to me, that is the framework, I think, that may be or one of the frameworks can be helpful and think about some of the stressors. Can you speak a little bit about some of these concentric circles? Could you give some examples of how that works in orthodoxy per se? Sure, sure. So let's take one of the examples that you gave in terms of financial stress. So certainly there are, you know, the individual, the families, how much money uh, are they earning? And, you know, is that enough to cover basic costs? But the, let's say the larger circle of local community stuff, certainly for people in the States, I think this is a larger issue. It's like, we're paying for tuition. Now, tuition can cost $15,000, $20,000, $25,000 per kid. And, you know, for the average American, not in the Jewish community, you know, it earns $45,000 a year. So obviously that is not sufficient to pay tuition for kids in multiple families. So one of these circles that influences on the family is the cost of tuition, which is, again, not blaming the schools, not that the schools should cost less, but the question is, so why do schools cost that much? And there are certainly people who can speak to this much better than I can. But part of it is that we, as a community, have expectations that our schools should be performing and prepare kids for the best yeshivas, for the best colleges, to have the best opportunities in extracurricular activities, to have athletics, to have all these different things to provide the best opportunities so that they can have the opportunities to get the best jobs to earn a certain amount, you know? And so the cultural norms, which again, I'm not saying are bad or negative and have a lot of wonderful qualities uh, uh, that provide a lot of opportunity and have raised the community in many ways, but that also provides pressure on the average person, both parents who then may both be working longer hours, who may not be as available in the home and also on the kids of, you know, what their expectations are are for themselves and the pressures that they face in going through school and whether it is like the competitive aspect of different yeshivas or seminaries or the competitive aspects of earning a living as they go on later in life. And so there are the cultural or communal aspects that impact on the individual level of stress when they come home and, you know, they, and and groceries cost a little bit more. And so, and it's like, well, these things, are all kind of connected. You know, if we were making a, uh, you know, a multiple regression of all the factors, obviously for each family, 
different things may impact differently. But I think when we look at it like that, there there are different opportunities for where interventions can happen that will have the broadest impact. There's some people where on the individual side it's necessary, and that's what tzedakah, you know, is for. We give money for people to put food on their table. And there are others that actually on a communal level make it have a broader impact of how to lower costs uh, or how to provide less pressure in terms of what spending would be like, which, you know, I think as a community is a, is a real challenge that we face. Look at advertisements in any Jewish publication and everything seems to be a very high level. And that's what people are seeing. And that's sort of the, uh, I think, implicit expectation that people are, are striving for. Does that, I don't know if that helps sort of give an example uh, of what this sort of framework may, may be. That really does. In fact, I'd like to stay on that issue of cost just for a moment before we get to some of the other issues, as long as we're opening up with that one. Part of the problem is, of course, simply the cost of a Jewish life. As you mentioned, Eitan, tuition is very high, at least in the United States. The cost of kosher food, you implied, is also more expensive than non-kosher food. And we could add other things to the list that are necessary. But I think there's an additional one which can be affected by society in a way, but it's very difficult to do so. And that's the cultural emphasis on, and for lack of a better term, materialism, which I think has maybe become a real problem in many of our Orthodox communities. I'm not indicting anybody in particular. I just see, however, and I have spoken to Rabbi Jeremy Weider on this podcast about that, that there seems to be, from my perspective, a greater emphasis on simply having stuff, on doing more things, on having more exotic vacations. To give an easy and simple example, summer camps. I remember when I was in Madrid, we had one trip each month, it was the same trip to a local campground about half an hour away from the camp. We pitched our own tents. We made our own food. We had a great time. And the next day we came back to camp. I hear now about some of the extravagant and expensive trips that camps take. A camp might go to California if the camp is located on the East Coast. A camp might go to Costa Rica. These are very expensive. And whether or not it helps the camp experience, once one camp does it, other camps have to do it as well in order to keep up. And that process, in turn, makes camps that much more expensive, passing costs on to the parents, which they may or may not be able to afford. I'm certainly not saying that this is true of all camps. It's not. But the general trend is my point, and it adds a lot of anxiety and pressure. And I think that might be emblematic of material expectations going up throughout Jewish society. And that's something which is very difficult for people to accept, because even if a person himself or herself is not materialistic per se— if everybody else's simcha is costing $100,000 and yours is a $30,000 simcha, you can't help but feel and experience some sort of anxiety about not keeping up, about failing your children and not giving them the same thing that everybody else does, about looking worse than everybody else, about not making your friends have such a good time at the simcha, comparatively speaking. Is that something which you've seen as well? Is there, is there something we can do about that? So the first thing, that is absolutely something that I have seen. Uh, and and in the, my clinical practice on the individual level, I, what I see it is people who are like unable to sleep because they are anxious about, and, and they're people with jobs and even good paying jobs. But, you know, it's like, I need to have this much money in the bank in order to pay for kids' weddings and apartments and whatever, which is 10, 15 years down the road. And, um, yeah, I... You know, my family has been blessed that we have, you know, my parents and in-laws have been willing and able to help us get started in life. There are many people who don't have that uh, kind of support. And so, yeah, I mean, these are uh, anxiety. I'll, if I can share a story, this actually is going yes. back a whole bunch of years. 
where um, we were living in a certain place and there was a, a shala shudas for young professionals. And my wife and I were actually some of the younger people at the table. I was still in school. And there was somebody who uh, commented about taking like sleeping pills you know, or it's like sleeping medicate, you know, at night to help them sleep. And I saw the people around the table. There were probably, let's say, eight to 10 young working couples, you know, in their 30s, early 40s at, at that point. Uh, let's say maybe late 30s. And they were all sort of nodding their heads. And I said, I just had a curiosity, not asking, you know, who here is or isn't taking, you know, but how many people, what percentage of people do you think are taking sleeping medication and like to help them sleep? And so someone said, I probably about 75, 80%. And I was like surprised by that. Thank God I'm a, I, I fall asleep well sometimes, you know, uh, and I, I'm a good sleeper. But, and, and the numbers aren't that high. They're probably 10, 15% or something like that. But the perception that, People in the working world are are so stressed out, right? That there's something going on in their lives that they are not able to sleep. And this is going back 10, 12 years, right? They're they're unable to fall asleep, these normal sort of human processes. And what I contribute that to is the pressures and demands of working, raising a family, paying the bills and all these other things. I mean, it has a very real impact on the day-to-day -day life of people. The question of what to do about it, I mean, there is the the other side of it to say is like the wealth that not all Jews, but many Jewish communities uh, have uh, been able to achieve, certainly in the United States, also in Israel to a large extent, has been a blessing in many ways. And it has provided opportunities for education and enrichment and family connectedness that would not be the case if the financial security and stability weren't there. And so there certainly is a certain aspects of blessing attached to it. And so it is that I, I, I don't necessarily have solutions to it. Uh, I know there are communal levels, you know, when people come out with here are guidelines for weddings or simchas and people look at that and they're like, nah, that's okay. Um, because again, they want family there and it's not even like about materialism, but it's like, you know, people, there's an expectation that you will invite family and friends to your simcha and that costs money, right? And it costs a lot, and it's a uh, financial stress. So I, I'm not sure I can offer solutions, but what I would say is, and this may, you know, the solutions may not come from the mental health professionals, meaning that it is not the people who are focusing on dealing with the anxiety that are the ones who can best combat the pressures that are associated with it. It is communal leadership, that takes many forms, whether it's Rabbanim or politicians or, you know, lay leaders in the community who make decisions about how they, what example they will set and how they use the financial blessings that they've, uh, that they've achieved. Again, if we're taking a step back, it's not necessarily about the person working with the individual in the therapy room or on a sort of small level, it, they are sort of big communal issues. And so I think they were then best addressed by communal leadership in one way or another. I was being very unfair by saying, what can we do about it? Right. One of the biggest <laughs> problems in Jewish life today. I figured I'd give it a shot, though, but I respect what you're saying. Another source of anxiety, which is also implied by everything we've said until now, is the problem of appearances. And I don't mean appearances necessarily in the, the negative sense of, you know, you care so much about how everyone perceives you. That feels very shallow. But it often comes from a real place of concern. For example, something which I see often here in Israel is a fear of appearances based on the problem of shiduchim, that if something happens in our family that we're not proud of, for example, or it might just be seen as a negative, even if we don't see it as a negative, that problem of appearances can lead to 
someone says, well, I'm not going to let my son go out with their daughter or something like that. I'll even give a simple example because my family is filled with Crohn's disease. I have Crohn's disease. I have a couple of kids with Crohn's disease. I have a niece and a nephew with Crohn's disease. I do know that having spoken to certain physicians in the Crohn's community, they say that they often have a problem with some people in certain religious communities who are afraid to treat their kids' Crohn's disease or even acknowledge it, even though it's getting worse and worse, because if that child has Crohn's disease, then their other kids as well will have a hard time finding a shidduch. That's an example of appearances that can cause tremendous stress and Obviously, I feel that's very, very unfortunate, but I also accept that in that community, it's real. How can we address and hopefully even prevent and preempt the problem of appearances, which is such a major source of anxiety and stress? So to me, when I hear that as a question, and I certainly see that on a daily sort of basis where uh, if not about medical conditions, certainly about like psychological whether it's therapy or diagnoses or medication or, or that kind of stuff, where part of the hesitancy, if there is some, it is about, well, what is the impact on like communal standing or, or stature or shidduchim or that kind of thing? And I, to me, this is, you know, it is about the pressures of, uh, I don't necessarily like this word, but like of the perfectionistic qualities that have developed. I'm not sure that they're new, but they seem to have increased over time as I wonder, this is sort of, I'm wondering if this is paradoxically related to communities becoming larger, becoming in some ways more successful in a lot of different ways, where there's a sort of expectation that we can create, you know, we can have a perfect sort of uh, something, right? Mm. And, that's interesting. you know, what, you know, and if there are 20 Jews in a neighborhood, so then, you know, they all sort of have to figure out how to get along and have families and, and do whatever. And I think this applies in a lot of different areas, not only necessarily, again, about medical or psychological issues, all about religious observance for kids or other family members, or whoever, or even who a person's friends are. There are all these sort of um, social indicators or social status indicators or indicators of suitability for Shidochim that in some ways, I think, are... I, I wonder if it's sort of being victims of our own success, where we have been able to achieve a high level uh, as a community, and not every individual was a community able to achieve this. And it sort of spills over into the very individual type of thing. I certainly hear the question in terms of what is the solution. I, I think that, again, it starts relatively, it's it's a big picture type of thing. I think there are individual level type of interventions about training one's kids to be open to imperfection or perceived imperfection, open to things that may be challenging in life. I think part of this is a relatively recent trend in a broader culture that things that are difficult are therefore bad. Um, you know, things have to be avoided if they are difficult. And I don't think in a big picture that serves people very well. I think it also, again, on a very individual level, spills into this sort of challenge where it's like, oh, if this person has this thing, that's going to be kind of difficult because what if I want to eat in this restaurant and they can't eat there because their foods they can't eat? It's like, it's like that's a very small thing. Like, well, that's an inconvenience. So let me look for something that's more convenient. I, I think that is a trend in the broader culture that sort of looks at difficulty, adversity, inconveniences as things that have to be avoided. Whereas I think if we were to, again, take a step back and think about it, we would say our communal values, our religious values should override the instinct to try to avoid anything uncomfortable. And we do do that sometimes. But so I, I know that's not necessarily offering broader solutions. I think that it is a communal big picture type of thing. 
And on the on the smaller level, the perspective that I guess this is what I would say, the perspective that things that are difficult need to be escaped or avoided, it spills into a lot of aspects of our lives, including these things that are very, very important and profoundly meaningful in our lives. And we we still have these very small patterns of avoidance of, of things that are uncomfortable or uh, inconvenient. I think that's such an important idea. I'm really just right now thinking about that and trying to internalize that idea about the natural inclination to avoid the unpleasant, to avoid that which makes things a little bit inconvenient. And this spills over everywhere, as you said as well. I really think that idea that our communities are striving for perfection, which is a good thing inherently, but the fact that we believe it's actually achievable in my personal mode, my own private life, can have some negative consequences like those we're mentioning right now. I think that's really important. I want to ask you about COVID. And I think here there might be two sides of it because COVID has obviously increased a lot of people's stress. I get that and certainly I'm not discounting it. But from talking to people in the United States, I'm not sure it's as true in Israel, though it might be. I just don't know. I haven't seen it as much here. It seems in some ways it actually has reduced certain orthodox stresses. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I was speaking to someone recently who said that there are fewer people coming to shul because during COVID they got used to not going to shul and now they don't go to shul. Now, on a religious level, I think that's very unfortunate. I think that as an orthodox Jew... Not having shuls in our lives as a central part of our week or every day is a problem. It's something which I think should be fixed. On the other hand, there might be an aspect of it where people are, you know what? I got used to not being stressed out by this thing that I have to do every week, and now I'm not going to do it anymore. And instead, they just don't show up to shul. Do you think that COVID has had some, from a mental health perspective, positive implications and aspects like that? positive effects that people are willing to let things go that maybe before were holding them down? Well, I'll ask, maybe I'll ask a question to you maybe from the, the, the other perspective on it. And that is one of the things that I think the COVID era taught us is the importance of connectedness and a sense of purpose, right? And, and that how connectedness to other people and community is associated with an individual's well-being, a sense of purpose and meaning. And so when people, I, I definitely think that pressures of like, okay, I have to go to shul every week and, and plays into religious pressure that, that can be negative in some ways. But I, I wonder when people are not attending, what are they doing during that time, right? And, you know, is that something that they are doing something else that could be meaningful or not? And I suspect that part of the, the difficulty of getting people back, you know, back into shul has reduced the level of sense of community and connectedness. And again, r- separate from the religious aspect of are they, you know, davening with a minion or not, which I, I know many people who feel that their davening is better for one reason or another, if they're davening on their own, whether it's a week or on Shabbos or whatever it is. And so the religious aspects aside, but the sense of connectedness and the other benefits that showing up to shul have, which is social connection, feeling of of community, feeling that you are part of something. I think that people, well, and maybe I'll, I'll use the same sort of language before. If people don't go to shul because there are aspects that are stressful and they are home. So it's, again, they get the relief from not having to go to shul and wake up early and the pressure they feel. And maybe if they've been able to expel the sense of guilt that they may have. But what they lose out on the other side is the sense of community and connection for themselves, for their kids, which actually, I think, in the long term, 
tends to have a negative impact on themselves, the family, obviously, then the community also, if there are less people involved. And so I, I definitely hear that finding areas where there is unnecessary pressure in com- Jewish communal life can be important in helping people find, let's say, a balance in what works for them, where, you know, <laughs> I think many women have expressed me when, you know, it's it's the afternoon and the kids are kind of going a little bit nuts and the husband is like, got to go to Mincha, right? And that's like, <laughs> you know, and it's always at the, no matter what time it is, it's always worse. So like, why do people go? There could be religious aspects to it. There's also a social aspect where people feel the need to go. It's like, all right, well, is that, pressure to show up to Mincha then more important than the value of being home to be helpful? And how do you balance those things? And how does that work? I think that is an important question to ask both on an individual family level, on a communal level of what Rabbana may be advising people about and showing up. But I think the idea that people will remove themselves from uh, fixtures of communal life because there's some of this other pressure involved Again, it's not to downplay the pressure that they feel, but it means that the avoidance of that and the, you know, is not necessarily serving them best in the bigger picture of the long term. I understand that. I still remember back Pesach three years ago. That was the big COVID Pesach. And of course, you know, eventually people adapted in different ways, both because of the advent of vaccines and also because of greater knowledge. At that Pesach, when at least in my neighborhood, there were no shuls. There was not even davening outside that Pesach. That was very much towards the beginning. And people look back at that and I've heard different responses. People, sometimes I hear them say, oh, that Pesach was the worst. Now, of course, I am not discounting that at all. I don't want to downplay it. For some people, it really was very, very difficult. And of course, people were dying. This was not a minor situation. There also was an aspect along that, which I remember, frankly, fondly. I remember the fact that our whole family was together we're blessed to have seven children. We were all together in the house and we were all there. And there was less pressure for the kids to get up for davening in the morning because if they wake up after Minion, there is no Minion to get up to. So you can get up and daven whenever you want so they could stay up at four in the morning. And who cares if they wake up later than the Minion would have been? Those aspects were, I look back at, very, very positive. It also could be that living in a place like Ramat Shemesh, where you and I both live, the aspect of community that's missing from Shul it's not the same as living in many places in Chutzlaretz, where the nearest from family may be blocks away from where you live. If you are living in Ramat Beit Shemesh, I can knock on my wall and there's somebody next door who's a from family and I hear them singing Zemiros on Friday night and they hear us too because our walls are thin. So even though we're not physically in the same room and you may not be seeing them, you know your street has on just within a block hundreds of from Jews. In that sense, there really was that nice positive aspect. And also, we assumed, you know, thank God correctly, that it wasn't permanent. It was sort of a temporary vacation where our normal way of life was being interrupted. And, well, you can't go to shul, so enjoy the fact that you can relax a little bit. So for me, that was an aspect which I look at positively. And I do remember it in the sense of, oh, there actually is less stress from that perspective, even though in many other ways it was filled with stress. Well, yeah, and I remember when we did with with my with our family, like the year in review at the end, we were talking about what was your favorite thing of the year, or whatever. And the kids actually mentioned the Pesach Seder during the COVID year, and there was something different about that, where you know there was something very nice. It was very different than the Pesach Seder that they were accustomed to having, and there was a wonderful aspect to it. And I would also say though that 
it, when that gets extended over long periods of time, there is, I think, uh, a disintegration of some of the communal bonds. That, again, has a different type of impact. And so as a, let's say, as an intervention, as a solution, it may be, and this, you know, that a person would say, all right, we're going to go away as a family, let's say, for a Shabbos somewhere, let's say, middle of nowhere. And so people say, well, how could you go? There's not going to be shul. There's not going to be It's like, okay, right? Like, meaning the pressure that, let's say, I have to be in a shul, you know, with the menu, with the Safer Torah every week. Again, this is not a halachic statement. But I think that if people are recognizing that as a family, our lives are such that we don't have an opportunity to bond. And you notice that, like, during COVID, when everything shut down, like, hey, this is actually kind of nice. Like, okay, that may be an indication that as a family, there there may be a need to take opportunities to do that, even if it means that once in a blue moon, you're not going to be attending a shul. You're, you, you know, you, you may be in a farmhouse somewhere, you know, just sort of like spending Shabbos together and eating deli food, because that that's something else, you know, that can provide the family, uh, you know, bonds. But I, I think as with many things in life, it is about finding the balance between these two things. For people who are finding themselves more permanently disconnected from the shul, and they'll say, well, I don't like going to shul, which I, I definitely I definitely know people who have that sort of sentiment. I think what they are gaining in reducing some of the pressure, they may be losing in what could, the opportunities of feeling socially connected, where maybe not everyone in Israel, but in a lot of places, the shul becomes the weekly opportunity for at least seeing other people, chatting for a few minutes and feeling connected to, you know, something bigger. That's an important point. I want to go back to, or maybe take that a little bit further when you talk about going away to the farmhouse for a weekend. Part of the problem, and this really does relate to my initial question at the very beginning of our talk, part of the problem is sometimes I think what I'd call a binary understanding of Judaism that exists in many communities, which is either do everything or you're doing nothing. And the idea of you're going to miss Minion for a Shabbos, if I want to take that line of argument further, which obviously you're not doing and I'm not doing either, is to say, you know something, it's very important for me to have kosher food for Shabbos, but you know what, I just need to have a Shabbos away with my family and there's no kosher food there, so okay, it's just one Shabbos. Obviously, that is extraordinarily different from taking a Shabbos and not being able to daven b'tzibor that Shabbos. At the same time, some people might not see it that way. So I want to ask again about that initial idea about Pressures of being Orthodox that are based on an Orthodox life, like making sure you have kosher food. I'm not speaking about the price now. I'm speaking about the reality of just when you go away, you can't go somewhere where there isn't kosher food unless you can carry it all in your backpack. Or the the pressures of mitzvot per se, the fact that you have to get ready for Pesach, whether you like it or not. These are not pressures that are put on by society. These are pressures that are put on by the Torah, by Chazal, by our traditions. How would you say that a person can try to, I mean, maybe you would say this is, I guess, the second part of the question is, yeah, anxiety is part of life. You can't avoid it. But are there ways you can lessen the anxiety that are associated with things that we can't pin on communal pressures? These are pressures that we take on willingly because we want to be Orthodox Jews. The fact that we take it on willingly doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be able to avoid all anxiety. Things that you take on willingly can still be fraught with fear and anxiety and pressures. So is there a way that we can prevent some of those from overwhelming us? So this, this to me on the sort of psychological level is a bigger, sort of a bigger question. And so I guess, okay, so I guess I would say like this, right? What is that pressure, right? The pressure is, so a person would say, well, why is it that there is this pressure? They would say, because let's say I feel guilty, right? Guilt is a big one, right? I feel guilty. So what I, what I would say is it's actually not that a person feels guilty, 
because guilty is, you know, is, is actually, number one, it's a part of life, and it's actually a, an important part of religious life, we think about it, that is the harata aspect of tshuva. It's the desire to avoid feeling guilty, right? It's like, well, I don't want to do this, because if I do this, I will feel guilty. It's like, okay, so, you know, so why is that bad? Well, I don't want to feel guilty. It's like, right, but the the desire to not feel that sense of guilt is what drives a lot of, at least this is a perspective that I put out there, is what drives a lot of the suffering associated with some of the challenges, right? And so let's say, right, we're talking about going to the farmhouse, right? So a person says, well, I don't want to go because, you know, uh, I'll feel guilty that I'm missing shul, right? Say, so, okay, so you'll feel guilty. So I'd say, well, do I, they have to not feel guilty? It's like, no, maybe they, maybe they will feel guilty because in their view of an ideal religious life, they would be going to shul. And yet they can still make the decision that the importance of having this family time, it, when we do have to make a binary decision of do I stay home or do I go to the farmhouse, they say, I'm going to go to the farmhouse. Well, how do I not feel guilty? I don't know. Maybe you will feel guilty, right? Maybe this is something that, just like many aspects of life, it is a balance of different values that each have their own benefit. And so when I'm choosing one over the other, there will be a certain guilt or certain disappointment, you know, or like maybe if we're even talking about simchas, well, how do I not invite, you know, this group of friends, you know, the tier two friends to my simcha, you know, I'm going to feel bad when I look at them and they're not invited, right? So it's like, so what do they do? They invite all these people because, so what, what would they say? Because I felt bad. It's like, no, no, you didn't invite them because you feel bad. You invite them because you didn't want to feel bad, right? But maybe feeling guilty is fine, right? Because they're friends and you want to be part of the simcha and you have to make a values judgment call that will involve feeling kind of bad that there are going to be some people who are left out, right? And so I, I think a lot on the individual level, from what I have seen or experienced, a lot of the suffering and angst that people experience about religious life is actually not about guilt per se. It is about the desire to avoid feeling guilty. And I would also say in terms of, let's say, not having kosher food, you know, I think that if we're thinking about levels of of isser, so obviously eating something that is not kosher, you know, is, uh, I, I don't know of an Orthodox rabbi who would say you can eat something not kosher. But what we may say is, all right, then for your Shabbos meal, you can have fruits and vegetables and crackers and, and you know, make kiddush over a, a loaf of bread if you can't bring, you know, and like, you can have a mineral thing. So I feel bad. How can I not have cholins? Like, okay, so you can feel bad. That's fine, right? If your values are that I want to have my Shabbos meal at a certain level, so, so you will feel a little bit bad about that, but you can still make that choice because there's this opposing value that in this moment, you know, takes priority. That is such an important point. It relates back to what you said earlier about this drive for perfection in our communities. Maybe in my own life, I want to have everything. I want to be able to do everything that I want and not feel bad about it. And sometimes the answer is, you have to make a values judgment here. You're not going to be able to have both. You have to be able to have a simcha that you can afford, and you also have to be able to not invite everybody. And sometimes those can conflict. And you know what? If they conflict, so be it. You might feel bad. Right. Because the third option is inviting everybody and going into debt and feeling resentful and feeling pressure and feeling stressed. It's like, well, you know, you're not you're in the attempt to not feel bad or to not feel embarrassed and not feel guilty. You end up, you know, you're not saving yourself from the suffering. You're just transferring it over to something that actually is much more difficult to to manage with. And that is the daily stress of you know, being in debt and not having, you know, the money to pay for the basic stuff you want or the security of, you know, uh, a little bit of savings in the bank account, you know, and so I, I think that, again, with many of these things on the individual level, they are sort of balancing 
opposing values that can both be very important, and then recognizing where is the sense of trying to avoid the difficult thing, right? And if it's driven by the avoidance, you know, a lot of times you'll run away from this thing, but you know, fall, you know, what is it out of the, out of the pot and into the fire or what's that expression yeah. out of the frying pan and into the, yeah, and into the fire. Exactly. But ending the Indian boat to Indian going to another topic in the same general conversation. I wanted to ask you about other mental health issues that take place in Orthodox life. And anecdotally, it seems there are probably more people suffering from mental health issues today than there were in the past, or perhaps we're just more aware of it. And therefore, the fact that we're more aware allows us to say, oh, more people are suffering, but it was always true. Which do you think is more accurate? Is there actually a greater incidence of mental health issues today than there were in the past? I, I think the answer is probably yes. And if I can give a little bit of a muscle for how I, I think about this. So if you imagine you go to an island, right, and there's this group of people who are on the island, and you notice there's some people having some like GI, you know, stomach issues, whatever. And so you send, you, you say, all right, this island needs like a GI doctor to help solve whatever the issue is. So you, you send the GI doctor and he lives there and you come back a year later and there are more people and this, this doctor is treating more people, right? And you're like, okay, well, he's a little overwhelmed. And uh, so we, we need more GIs, right? And so you send more GIs to the island and you come back a year or two later and you're noticing that there's more and more people being treated, you know, that the doctor is trying to treat and they're getting overwhelmed. So at a certain point, so there's a few options. Right. One is that there there were always these people who were having the GI issues and just we, we didn't know about it because there were not the professionals available to be able to identify, you know, and so people weren't, you know, coming to people because they're like, well, there's nothing to do about it. There's no one who can help. So I'm just not making myself, uh, you know, uh, known. Another option, I guess, would be that the doctors aren't very good at the job. And so they aren't solving any issues with people with GI tracks. So it just builds up and builds up because they're not solving any issues because they're just not. But the GI really, a, a GI really is the right way to handle it. But these are just the wrong ones to be doing it. And the third option, which I think we would all sort of come to the conclusion ourselves, is that, yeah, there may be some people who the GIs can, can help. But if what we're seeing is maybe this is not a GI doctor issue. Right. Maybe this is something in the water source. Right. And the water is what is, you know, it has these bacteria or whatever it is is causing these things. And so the GI is not actually a solution. The solution is having a water filtration system. Right. Which relies on local government and it relies on scientists, it relies on whoever to, to solve you know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, how are people treating the food? Right. Are they cooking it? Are they eating raw meat? You know, and, and what sort of those cultural things? That's the way I often think about the, let's say, mental health stuff. What I have noticed is, and again, this is my profession as well, and is not in any way to downplay the benefits that people receive from therapy or to downplay the professionalism or the skill of the various therapists who are out there. What I would say is, you know, I think it is hard to walk down a block without, you know, bumping into a mental health professional in the certainly English-speaking Jewish community, right? And it's like, are we seeing rates of depression, anxiety going up or going down, right? And I, I don't think that they're going down. And so the question is, well, why not, right? And so I think that maybe what we are looking at is the things that will solve the issues on the bigger picture. Again, individually, I, there are people whose lives, both physical lives and emotional lives, are saved by the therapy process. And there's no question about that. In, in the same way that the... GI will help a certain percentage of people who really need, you know, that that's really the issue that they need a GI doctor with the, that set of expertise. But, you know, the, the question of like, well, wh what is going on is, is the solution more mental health professionals, more therapy, you know, it's, you know, and, and because 
we have more mental health professionals, that's why we're seeing more people who are struggling. I'm, I'm not sure that's the case, or I'm not sure that it's just we're able to identify things were always there. I suspect that some of it is the sort of broader, whether it's Jewish communal issues or broader trends, cultural trends in the Western world, secular world that are impacting kids and adults in the community. I suspect that's probably the more likely explanation. And that also opens the door for, well, how do we think about what solutions or interventions would look like? Because, you know, the therapy, so I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but like the, this is sort of where my mind goes, the therapy aspect of it is both much more resource intensive and also not necessarily even helpful for all of the people who may be struggling one way or another. What do you mean resource intensive? Well, I mean, you know, it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of time. It's an expensive prospect. And a lot of times, as you were bringing forward, we talked about before, part of the stressors that people have are financial stressors. And those are specifically the people, you know, who may be, you know, when kids or even adults are in that situation with a lot of stress, they look to, to therapy to be the solution to that sort of stress. And they're the ones who don't have the resources to pay the private therapist. And there are there are some, you know, public free or subsidized therapy options, certainly not enough, and certainly not accessible to all the people who may be seeking it. And so, uh, and it, it costs, you know, time for people bringing their kids somewhere, it means that they're leaving their other kids at home, if, or if they themselves are meeting with a therapist, it means leaving the family or leaving work early, or, you know, or losing out on other sort of opportunities that, that may be there. Um, and again, it can be necessary, and very beneficial in some instances. But I think that if we are thinking about the the mental and psychological, emotional distress that we're see seeing among people, which again, I do think is rising. I don't think it's just we're being more aware of it. I do think it is rising. I, I'm not sure that the intervention is best thought about on the individual level. So from your perspective, it really is about stopping the influences on the communal level that are leading to these greater anxieties. It's about prevention on a wider level in the outside circles rather than on the individual level, even though individuals can certainly benefit from therapy. You're effectively saying, in your metaphor, this is like treating the water supply rather than just adding more GI doctors, correct? Yeah, and so I'll, I'll give an example. And this, you know, um, well, I'll say two things. Part of the reason why I think prevention conversations are not as common is because it's much more difficult to show people what has been prevented you know, if there's somebody who, let's say, is in a very difficult spot and they would need to go to a, you know, uh, like a rehab, uh, you know, an inpatient or rehab center or something like that for a few months. And that can be $30,000 a month. You can show people, here's a person whose life you can save. And again, it is, it can be inv invaluable to be able to go to these places. It can save, it can absolutely save lives. You know, the question of prevention is like sort of this, uh, it's a little more, what would it be like esoteric, right? It's, it's, it's like, how do you, quantify what is being helped. But if you imagine for a second, right, this is something that comes up, I think, a fair amount, unfortunately, it's a very painful thing to see. Like when kids are bullied in school, right? So what ha so the kid has a very difficult time, they end up with behavioral challenges at school, behavioral issues at home, they end up not connecting well with friends. And so parents may see that or, or, or people see that it's like, okay, we need to send to the to a therapist to help them deal with self esteem issues, you know, because they have a low self esteem, they're acting out. It's like, well, hold on a second. Again, it's not to discount whether that could be helpful, but the solution to that is actually in the school, you know, implementing, you know, anti-bullying programming, whatever that may look like, you know, and I remember one of our 
kids uh, when we lived in Silver Spring, a Torah school in Silver Spring, was I, Rabbi Charner and implemented a wonderful anti-bullying program. And it was a sort of thing where literally every day, like this was sort of the emphasis of, of school was the, we, I guess we would call it, but it was about addressing, you know, ki- how do kids treat other kids and how is that done appropriately? And then on a sort of administrative level, how do you handle when kids don't necessarily do it? You know, but the the solution, so you'd say like, well, you know, the bullying is something that has a profound impact on the life of the person. And I meet with people now who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who are still talking about being bullied when they were in elementary school and, you know, uh, middle school, um, in high school. And those sort of things, right, that is, there is a mental health solution, meaning a mental health professional solution to help those kids who are suffering. But the real intervention is on the level of the school, right? How does the school, and and then what you end up seeing is when schools can implement that and then kids feel safer and kids feel more connected, that it actually helps the social emotional learning, you know, of the kids moving forward. And it has a tremendous benefit for everybody. And you end up seeing, you know, the, there's the data out there, less drug use, you know, among the kids, you end up seeing less depression, anxiety stuff among the kids. The kids are more successful academically when there's that sort of safety in school. And it's like that actually starts with educators and, you know, administrators. And it is actually not a like mental health professional issue. Right. It, but it has a profound impact on the trajectory, of, you know, the mental health trajectory of, you know, the broader community and the kids who are in the school. So I don't know if that makes sense in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about prevention in that way and how it can be so important. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's really important. Obviously, it still doesn't change the fact that for that individual who was bullied before those interventions came into play and those preventative ideas were put into practice, that kid is still suffering from whatever scars took place from being bullied. He still needs a mental health professional. But you did tell me, Eitan, off the air, that you think sometimes we use therapy as a catch-all solution. Perhaps I'm not using the correct terms, but too often in schools, they'll say, well, that kid's, he has this problem, so let's just send him to a therapist. In some levels, it's much better than the old days when it would be treated in-house by people who didn't know what they were doing. But on the other hand, is it possible that we really are sending kids who need therapy too much to therapists as opposed to, on the one hand, as you say, trying to put preventative measures in place beforehand and also even afterwards? Are there things that can be handled in-house that don't require therapy that we sometimes over-therapy, to coin a term, I guess? So there are, and again, I I just want to reiterate, this is not to downplay the importance or benefit that both kids and adults can have have a meeting with with therapists and the therapy process. Again, it can be life-saving. And and it itself can prevent challenges that that come up down the road. But I, I think that some of the ways that I have seen that sometimes strike me as being not helpful, right? And again, on an individual level, it's I, I would never be able to say, oh, this particular person shouldn't be or it's a bad idea. But I think there are some times when we either treat, uh, and this goes back to the perfectionist uh, tendencies, we treat sort of regular growing up stuff as something that is you know, it's pathologized, right? And it's something that is bad or needs to be fixed tomorrow because it's like, well, if I can't fix that, then... You know, they haven't shown up to davening for a week and a half. It's like, well, they need to be with a therapist. It's like, well, hold on. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Right. Maybe the kid will. And again, it, it's hard to say on an individual level what is or isn't the case. And, you know, and that's a sort of a different part of the conversation. But some things are sort of regular parts of growing up for certain kids. Certainly, let's say if a kid has ADHD or 
something like that, where a lot of these things will be challenging, school will be challenged. Like, yeah, these, these things are going to be difficult. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the kid is, you know, uh, like doing something wrong or bad or whatever. Like this is part of their figuring out how to adjust to the world and manage with it. I The other way, and this is something that I know not everyone agrees with me with and something I've mentioned to different people along the way that I get a, a mixed response from. But I think sometimes it is outsourcing responsibility for providing guidance for dealing with life stressors. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we as adults, uh, and I, I've said this more to like Rebeam or educators, and and there are reasons why it's difficult in like yeshivas or something like that. But if we as adults have confronted a lot of the challenges that our kids have confronted also. And the question is, what have we done to figure out how to manage with the curveballs that life throws us and, and the difficulties? And it's like, well, maybe that is... Uh, and so there are things that we, let's say, as parents can do to help provide guidance to our kids in two ways. One is establishing just regular connection with them, spending time with them, talking with them, not even about the challenges or problems. And the second is, if that relationship can be forged, we have the opportunity to listen to the kid and provide guidance for how it can be, you know, what things need to be handled, what things they can sort of ignore, what sort of things you know, you can sort of sit with them as they're having difficulty with this friend or that friend or, or certain tests or subjects in school that's difficult. And so we've, we actually, as adults, hopefully go through a process of adulthood where we're figuring this stuff out. And so I think when therapy is used to outsource providing life guidance to kids, I think that it ends up being, it is not necessarily the most helpful or effective way of going about it. And so, again, it is hard to say on an individual level what when that may be the case. But, I, I, you know, I think that there are schools, let's say, who send a lot of the kids to, ther to, to therapists. And it's not to, to disparage them in any way. But uh, on a communal level, is that what's most helpful, right? Is, is there a reason why, let's say, parents or friends or community members are not qualified to offer guidance about, well, what friendships looks like? What do what should the dating process look like? you know, uh, talks about sexuality, right, that in principle are sort of the core issues of values that we are trying to transmit to our kids. But a lot of times we are sort of like, again, like outsourcing it to like to somebody else. And so I, I think those are two main areas, again, these sort of everyday life challenges that, you know, people may face that it's like, you're raising the ante by sending to a therapist in a way that may not be helpful. And it sort of makes the, the person think that there's something more wrong with them, so to speak, than actually is the case. And the second is, is I would say, like outsourcing what would be guidance either from parents or rebellion or other teachers or adults or, or educators or something like that, because whatever the reason be either discomfort or they're frazzled and they don't have the time themselves, you know, or they're overworked or whatever it may be, that I think sometimes relying on therapy to provide that is not necessarily in the community or the kid's best interest. That makes a lot of sense, but it really does raise a lot of issues for me personally, both as a parent and as someone who used to teach as well. The issue is this, which is that it's very hard to know where that line is drawn, and I think there's such a danger of figuring it out and getting it wrong and being on the wrong side of that line. For example, when I used to have a yeshiva, we had some students who came in, and at certain situations, we had it for 11 years, there were many students, and we said we wanted to send them to a therapist. And occasionally, the therapist would come back to us and say, I cannot believe those parents waited until now and you're the ones who are finding the problem and they didn't take care of this. 
this kid has some serious, serious mental health issues that have not been addressed for 18 years. How could it have gone so far? And then there's the other side, as you're saying, where people are outsourcing it and things that are not mental health issues. They're treating it like this kid has depression. We have to send him to a therapist because he won't get up for Minion this week. And he's in bed all the time as opposed to, no, he's going to bed at four in the morning because he's watching movies. He doesn't care about Minion. There are all sorts of reasons why it could be happening. There I can figure out there probably isn't depression. It's probably just a sleep issue or not wanting to go to Minion or various other things. But as a parent, I worry about this. And as a teacher, I worry about this. How do I know if I'm not erring on the wrong side, if I'm not making a mistake and saying, I'm not going to send him to therapy. This child simply needs more guidance for me. Maybe the guidance he needs is guidance that I'm going to do wrong because I'm not trained and he needs something much more than I can provide. It's above my pay grade. How does someone know where to make that decision and how to draw that line? So the way I usually think about it is, is, and I advise actually parents and teachers when it comes up, although it's more frequent with parents when, when the question is raised, is for the parent or the educator to meet with a trusted therapist and say, here's what I'm seeing. Is this something that should be brought to, you know, the mental health professional? And so uh, I agree with you making that determination. Even the mental health professional may not know for certain. Uh, but I, I think that there are times when, uh, I guess because you sort of raised it a little bit, like what a parent, let's say, called up and said, like, I, you know, I found my kid with their phone and stuff on it that I don't like. I need to go to the therapist. And it's like, well, I, and it's not to say that, that the kid wouldn't benefit from it. But it actually, you know, it may, what may be helpful is for the parent to be able to figure out how to get over the discomfort of talking about this embarrassing thing with their kid, right, and figure out what is the right technology policy. And this is a whole topic, I think, that also, I don't think there's a community in the world that's figured out, and I think the Jewish community is included in that, is how to deal with technology stuff in general. Certainly inappropriate stuff with technology is a unique problem, but that's not, it's not only that. You know, but the parent then figure out, well, how did, how did you as a parent set the boundaries with the kid? How do you as a parent talk to your kid about uh, these issues? How do you ensure that they're not going to sleep at four o'clock in the morning because they're playing Call of Duty, you know, with uh, with it, right? And so I, I think that the parent or the educator, uh, there's some things that are black and white. Like you're, if you're seeing certain things like, yes, this kid definitely needs a higher level of of support that we can provide in this school, this yeshiva, then I think there's some things that are very clear, but the issues that are gray, you know, so I think it would be the rebellion having conversations with a mental health professional saying, here's what I'm seeing. Is this something that you think, like, what are the, what are the steps maybe that you might advise? And then the Rebbe has to take that and filter it and apply it for how it works within their own institution, you know, in, the, in their own school and, and then see if that's helpful. And, and, I, but I think that it starts with, the people who are within the orbit of the kid's life being sort of the first and second lines of of support rather than the therapist. And I'll say one other thing, I had a a soccer coach, Coach Bob, who actually uh, later when I was older learned that he was also a child developmental psychologist, but that was not, I didn't know him as that. I knew it was Coach Bob. He taught me, you know, soccer and baseball and basketball that. And, but when we were in, in playing on the soccer teams, he would, he would always say that like, you know, if the goal goes in, people look at the goalie and be like, well, why didn't you stop it? And he said, like, in order to get to that point, there are a lot of other systems that had to break down for the person to have a clear shot at goal. Right. And it's like so 95 percent of the time, this is not like the, I mean, the goalie is there for a reason. Right. It's trying to be helpful and can be helpful and can save the goal. But the you know, as you're saying, like with parents that send the kid, it's like, right, the, the therapist is there for that 
that reason, right? Where if the kid gets to, to Israel and they're 19 years old and have had these major challenges that have never been addressed, but the the first and 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 that certainly is an issue that should be addressed, you know, and, and the therapist plays a major role. But the real challenge there is, well, what was going on with, you know, in their home, in their family, in the community, that these things were not recognized or, you know, it could be they were recognized or the parents were overwhelmed or they couldn't afford to send to the therapist or they couldn't find a psychiatrist or, you know, they were disconnected from a community. And so, you know, they themselves didn't feel comfortable or they were nervous sending their kids because of the shit off stuff. It's like, that is actually, you know, and so there are all these other factors that get you to this kid who is not able to function in the way that, that he or she needs. And, and of course, the therapist is, is a necessary component to helping that person. But I think on a bigger, on a communal level, the interventions start with looking, you know, uh, before that in a sort of bigger way. I'll just say alongside of that, because all of what you said makes a lot of sense. Sometimes in Israel, it's not just that the teachers in Israel have to discover things. Unfortunately, it could be that it's much better now than it used to be. In fact, I'm sure that on some level it has to be. But there have been many instances where in Israel it was exacerbated. And I mean, sometimes I'll say, quote unquote, intentionally, meaning there are some people who are teachers in some of the yeshivot. I'm sure this is true probably in high schools in America as well. I'm simply speaking about an area that I know about here. There are some teachers in yeshivot who are, to say the least, not mental health professionals, but say things that are very damaging in the process of trying to do what they think is a positive thing, make the kids from. I would go so far as to say that some Rabam are even verbally abusive to students, perhaps not intentionally, all done l'shem shamayim, but nevertheless, it can be extraordinarily damaging. Here's a simple example. It's not even, quote unquote, such a big deal. I can mention far worse examples. This one just comes to mind right now. I remember a particular teacher who heard that his student was going to a not religious college and his response was, if you go there, I'm going to tear Kriya. That alone can be so damaging simply because of the lack of confidence the teacher is giving into the student, the messages that he's giving explicitly and implicitly, the idea that you're dead to me or however you want to interpret this. There are all sorts of issues the person might have had that could then be exacerbated. I don't know what happened to that student. I don't know what happened to that teacher either, except that I know that he wasn't teaching there the next year. But these are the kinds of things you see all the time. This is classic. This is endemic to some of the yeshivot where people who don't know what they're doing for motivations, which are good, they're trying to do the right thing, can completely make a situation far worse. And it's not just that no one ever noticed the problem before. Whatever problems were there are now far worse because the teachers are making it worse. Well, and what I would say is that that teacher, that line, right, it's using, there's two things that it's using to try to motivate the kid to do something differently. One is a sense of guilt or shame, right? That like you are going there, you are letting me down. That is a, that is using shame in order to motivate the kid, which is something that I'm not a fan of, right? I don't, I think that it can be effective in achieving short-term results, but it is in many instances damaging long-term. And it also is using rejection, right? And as a way of motivating. And so I think that that is, and I, I do see that in certain yeshivas are sort of more known for that than others. I do see that, unfortunately, as a method used by educators to try to motivate kids. There are some kids who seem to take well to that. There are many who find that to be very difficult in an unnecessary way, right? Like there's not necessarily a reason then it has to be that way. And but and I would also say that that methodology, it's like, okay, so now you have the kid who is experiencing turmoil. And I've, seen, and I've certainly seen this as a result of this. It's like, well, my family, you know, I want to get 
go to a certain school because I want to get a certain job. My family's pushing me to go here or whatever. And then I have this, my, this religious figure, religious authority, basically offering me shame and rejection if I make this choice that's consistent with the values of my childhood, values of my family, and the values that, you know, honestly, I think are actually pretty good, right? And so it's like this unnecessary inner turmoil that is generated by that. And so they end up meeting with the therapist, let's say, because they're having tremendous the guilt and, and, and shame and, and confusion. And so, again, is there a role for the therapist there? Yes. The intervention for that would be to stop using shame as a motivator for students to, uh, you know, to advance themselves. And so, again, some teachers may say, well, no, that's that's the way we educate. That's how we've always done. And that's what works. And so, again, there, there may not be much of a, uh, you know, they may not be willing to address and do things differently. But I think if we're thinking about prevention, then, you know, a lot of the places where the prevention can happen it starts well before the mental health professional on the individual level, right? And it would be if about parents. And again, I know this is difficult. Parents are overwhelmed and may not have information, but about parents, you know, learning about what are the yeshivas are out there and not only like what's the schedule and how much they're learning, but, you know, speaking to other parents about how how is motivation uh, achieved in this sort of yeshiva. And it's like, and if these sort of things are used and you don't think that's good for the kids, you know, but again, many parents then are not in a position to be able to assess that. And they may not be connected to yeshivas and they may not know. And so this then becomes an issue, well, communally, how do we make this available? How do we make these encourage connectedness among parents? And that also is a sort of communal issue. And so all those sort of things, and this is, I think, the framework of think on a communal level, have a very profound impact on the individual. And in that case, yes, the therapist has a, a very important role. But I think the the solutions to that involve these other systems that are broader. And I think that issue that we're talking about now about Yeshiva is probably its own episode or series of episodes because there's there's a lot to talk about there. So we'll we'll leave that for now. We're almost out of time, Eitan. This has been really fascinating. I want to ask you one more question just about your book, Talmud on the Mind, Exploring Chazal and Practical Psychology to Lead a Better Life. What's your book about and why did you write it? Sure. So uh, the book is, I'd say it's a, 14 chapter independent or 13 or 14 whatever it is uh, uh independent chapters and it is related to the overlap between principles in contemporary psychology psychological science and ideas found in chazal um in the gemara mostly and and i'd say i started writing it i'd say i started taking notes not with necessarily with the intention of writing a book when i was in graduate school and i was learning things and i was like oh this actually sounds a lot like this line or this idea from the Gemara. And, you know, I'd make a little note to myself. And then as I would, you know, progress with both the my learning in Gemara and also my studies in graduate school and beyond, you know, turning the page of the Gemara, noticing when uh, Chazal use psychological ideas or principles. Well, one of a couple things, either when Chazal use psychological insight in order to either explain something or apply a certain halacha or whatever it may be, or alternatively, where contemporary psychology offers unique insight into a, you know ideas of chazal that we may not have been aware of, or maybe more less accessible to us without the sort of modern psychology fleshing it out more uh, than we would otherwise be familiar with. So I guess it tracks through a couple different like different patches. That, passages in the Gemara of Brachos, which 
you know, but it's not, it's certainly not a commentary on, uh, on Brachos. It kind of loosely uh, follows a few passages that, that are there along the way, fleshing out either psychological principles through a lens, you know, of, of the Gemara of Chazal, or fleshing out certain principles of Chazal through a, let's say, modern or psychological science lens. It sounds fantastic. I have to tell you, Eitan, I really learned a lot today. You, uh, in some ways, help reorient the way I think about some of these issues of mental health and anxiety, and in particular, prevention and the ways we look at prevention, both on the communal level and the individual level. And I thank you very much, Rabbi Dr. Eitan Eisen. This was a really interesting conversation, so thank you. And thank you, Scott, for for having me. And I enjoyed being able to think about it. And the questions uh, opened my mind up a little bit, even as we were talking, to be able to think about things a little differently. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.